All right, we're in Romans chapter 12. If you're in your copy of Scripture, you can turn there or you can just follow along. And uh, I think it'll be uh, up on the screen from, from time to time. I just want to remind you really quickly about the book of Romans because it's been a little while since uh, we've been in the book of Romans together. This summer we took a break from Romans and we were looking at our favorite Bible stories, which was really fruitful and, uh, and a lot of fun as well. And now we're back in Romans. That'll take us up until uh, the end of the year. So let me just sum up uh, book of Romans very, very quickly. It shouldn't take more than an hour. Um, everybody has sinned. What is sin? Everybody has done things that God doesn't like, and everybody has failed to do things which God would have us do. So everybody, in some sense, has offended uh, God's holiness and righteousness. Whether you're really good at being bad or you're really good at being religious, all of us are in the same boat. Everybody is separated from God because of our rebellion against God. Now, thankfully, God has made a way for us to know him, know him through the sacrifice of Christ. So even though in our, our sin, we are marked by unrighteousness, by faith, we can be re-identified as righteous. We can be remade. So our unrighteousness is now known as righteousness because we receive Christ's righteousness. And that's why in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 1, it says, there is now therefore only a little bit of condemnation for those, I'm just making sure you're awake. Okay, Howard's like, what, what? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because by faith, Christ's righteousness has been given to us. We call this the gospel. So the book of Romans is not making a religious argument and the book of Romans is not a making a everything you want to do is okay argument. The book of Romans is saying you are righteous by faith in Christ alone. That's how you have relationship with God that lasts forever. And then the question is, then, so what difference does that make? So what difference does that make? Okay, great, good. I get righteousness by faith. What difference does that make? Well, that's where Romans chapter 12 begins. If you want to, just scan very quickly to Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And what do we ask whenever we see a therefore? You know this one. When you see a therefore, you ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. If you didn't know that, now you do. He is saying, therefore, therefore, because of the first 11 chapters of Romans, because of Romans 1 through 11, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Because we've been made righteous by faith in Christ alone, live righteously. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So Romans 12 to the end of the book, Romans 16, is seeking to answer the question, what difference does the gospel make when it finds a home in our hearts? If you buy a new car and you discover somebody says, hey, this car has a performance chip in it, you say, what does that do? And the person might say, well, it adds a little bit of horsepower to your vehicle or it adds a little bit of torque to your vehicle. It adds a little bit of acceleration to your vehicle and maybe it shortens the life of your engine just a touch. Who knows? But you say, what is it there to do? And that's what Romans 12 is, is doing for us. What is the gospel supposed to do? Is it merely a ticket to heaven? Is that all it is? Is it merely when you get to heaven, you hand them your gospel ticket to get in? And the answer is no. It's much more than that. And the answer is this, it's the title of the message today, the gospel is to transform us. Transformed living is a life of genuine love. So let's go back down to our passage, beginning in verse, verse 9, let love be genuine. 
I'm going to give you my outline just in case you get a phone call and you have to leave. Are you ready? Verses 9 through 13, we're going to look at transformed living in the body of believers, in the church. Transformed living in the church. Another way that the passage says it here, genuine love in the church. Then we're going to look at verses 17 through 21 and try to understand what is transformed living look like in the world around us. Genuine love in the world around us. Then after that, we're going to go back to the middle of the passages, verses 14, 15, and 16, and use those as a catalyst to to apply these truths uh, to our lives. And then we're going to respond to the gospel with communion at the end of it. So that's the roadmap this morning. So let's get uh, after it. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Let your love be genuine. Uh, Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Genuine love here is more than just not fake love. We might have a tendency to think, okay, so my love shouldn't be fake. Certainly, your love shouldn't be fake. This is more than that. This is more than don't be fake love. This is love that says, I want to look for tangible expressions of my love for others. This goes way beyond. Genuine love here in the scripture is way beyond an emotional connection or an emotional appeal. This is an active love that says, I want to look for it, think about, consider ways to tangibly express my love for and to others. What comes out of having my mind to be transformed like Jesus? It's a renewed love, a genuine love in the church and a genuine love uh, for the world around us. And in the church specifically, it's intentional strategic ways in which we can express love and affection for one another. A couple of things here. Look at the verse again. Abhor what is evil. That seems like a fairly low bar. Love one another, but not in evil ways. You don't get to love one another in the body of Christ through adulterous relationships. And you say, well, we shouldn't have to say that. We'll tell the church in Corinth, right? They had to be told that. We certainly should have love and relationships that honor the holiness of Christ and recognize the holiness of relationships around us. Love in the church should not be, uh, uh, what's the word? You don't know because I haven't told you yet. It It shouldn't be exclusionary. I show my love to you by recognizing we both hate that guy, right? I'm going to show my love to you by carrying the offense you have on that person. That's not love. That's love expressed to you in an evil way. I'm going to love you by hating on somebody else. That's not how it works in the body of Christ. So we abhor evil. Instead, we hold fast to what is good. We cling to righteousness of Christ. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. And the guys in the room, maybe some of you are squirming a bit. What's brotherly affection? That seems a little soft, seems a little weird. Is that an emotional thing? A little bit. What he's calling us to do here is have a love and affection for one another where we can actually be in the same room and not despise one another. Here's the difference. I've seen this a lot in churches. Not this one, other churches. Where, oh yeah, I love that guy. Why don't you go say hi? Oh, I don't talk to him. It bothers me when he's here. I like to figure out which service he goes to. I can love him when he's somewhere else better, actually. So that, and, and somehow we think that's some kind of Christian dynamic ethic. Like, I'm a, I'm a holy Christian following Jesus' footstep because I haven't murdered that guy. 
I managed to not say uh, something mean to him by not talking to him. Yeah, were you ever told that as a kid? Yeah, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. What does the Bible say? Have something nice to say. That's what the Bible says. If you have to not say anything in order to avoid being mean to somebody, we're missing the mark on brotherly affection. And what's challenging about the body of Christ is this. By its intention, the ministry of the gospel intends to get a group of people together that over the course of time, the only thing they have in common is Jesus. So we don't have a common a race in common or a common heritage in common or a common political viewpoint in common or a common economic status in common or uh, any of these normal things that people connect on. In the body of Christ, we connect on Jesus. So I have to have brotherly affection for brothers and sisters in the Lord who are Democrat or Republican or voted for that guy or have that bumper sticker. And you say, no, if you have that bumper sticker, you're by definition not a believer. And I say this, one of those two people is demonstrating something that's not Jesus-y. It's not the guy with the bumper sticker. Because brotherly affection says, I can love you even though I disagree with you on a whole bunch of stuff if we agree on Jesus. That's brotherly affection. If you want to hang out, I've said this before, I'll keep saying it till, till you get it. If you want to hang out with a bunch of people like you, what is it? Join the Elks. That's what you do. Join a knitting club. Join a golf club. Join a hiking club. Then you can get together with a bunch of people who are just like you. If you want to be a, with a bunch of people where you have to intentionally love people who are different than you, join the church. That's the idea. It hasn't always been the case in the church, as we all know, but that's the idea. That's what brotherly affection is. It's an affection for it. Not merely I put up with you. It's a I'm glad you're here kind of affection. Verses 19. Let's look at verse 11. We've got to keep moving. Verse 11 says this. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. How are we to show genuine love in the church? Don't be lazy. But let's not be lazy in a specific way. Obviously, throughout the Bible, especially in the book of Proverbs, we want to emphasize the fact the Bible calls us to diligence. There's a great thing about being diligent. Jesus himself was diligent. Specifically here, he's saying don't be slothful in zeal, especially in zealousness that's expressed in service to the Lord. So let's be careful here. We're talking about zealousness. We're not talking about religious emotionalism. That's sometimes what we think about when we think of zealousness. It's a burning in my bosom. I'm getting really excited about Jesus or some cause among the cause of Christ. I'm getting really excited about it. And we think it's sort of an emotional thing. What he's talking about here is a diligence expressed in activity for service to the Lord. Fervent, expressive service, not mere emotionalism. And in fact, it says here, serve the Lord. How does Jesus serve? What does it look like to serve? Well, we have to think about the night Jesus was betrayed at the Last Supper, especially in the book of John. What did Jesus do that night? He disrobed, he wrapped a towel around his, mid, uh, his waist, and he sat down and he washed each of the disciples' feet. 
using the towel around him to dry his disciples' feet after washing each. And he told his disciples, this is how you're supposed to do it. This is what service in the kingdom of God looks like. It's if the master will wash feet, then what should the servants do? I don't have a good way of saying what foot washing ranks as. I think the best thing we could talk about in our culture would be washing a toilet. If you did it naked with nothing other than a towel, that would be what we're talking about. Is you got to go in, you've got a towel around your waist. Have you imagined this scene with Jesus? He dries their feet. Where have those feet been? Right? And now he's wrapping it around him, and now he's wearing it. Okay, so you go into the bathroom, clean the toilet with a towel, and that becomes your garment. This is the kind of service that Jesus was doing. And Jesus is saying, I want you to serve. If the master is willing to serve in this way, how then should the servants be willing to serve? And what the Bible is calling us to is not slothful, but zealous, fervent service to the Lord, which is always expressed to service to God's people in the world around us. A zealousness to serve others, in particular the way Jesus served. A good friend of mine always said it this way. I love this phrase. I've used it many times before. So therefore, in the church, the first one to the bottom wins. That's the goal. It's not how high you can get. It's not how awesome you can get. It's how low can you get. Of course, the disciples didn't understand that. What were they arguing about on the night their feet were washed? Who's the greatest? They weren't getting it. And Jesus washing their feet says, I'm showing you how to be uh, the greatest. So be uh, thoughtful and, and humble. I might even say this. The goal here is to serve in ways that are not merely humble, but in ways that are humiliating. That's what Jesus did. How do you know if what you're doing is humble or humiliating? I'll help you with this. If you posted your service on Instagram, it's not humiliating. Because in some sense, what we're doing there, I'm going to do some, something humble and seek to connect with it, honor. That's not what Jesus was doing. Jesus was doing something below him, something... Uh, well, debasing is what we call that. He said, well, that's not my gift. That's not my, I love this. That's not my passion. Yeah, because foot washing was Jesus' passion. As it turns out, it was. Because his passion was serving in humiliating ways. So the question here is not what do I want to do? What, is, what, what do I feel like doing? What's my vibe? The question is, how do I get low fast? That's the question in the in the body of Christ. That's, that's verse 11. And what he's actually saying is not when you get around to it, because when are you going to get around to humiliating service? Next week. And next week, it'll be next week again. He's, he's saying here, be fervent in spirit. He's, did I miss it? Yeah, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. How do I get after it? How do I, how do I get that handled? It's a diligence to seek to serve the Lord by humbly, maybe even humiliatingly, serving others. Genuine love in the church, verses 12 and 13, then we'll be done with this portion. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of others. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to, to show hospitality. Let's go backwards and beginning in, in verse 12. Be constant in prayer. Why would you need to be constant in prayer? Go backwards a little more. 
Be patient in tribulation. How are you patient in tribulation? Be constant in prayer. How are you patient in tribulation? Rejoice in hope. Tribulation comes. Difficulty comes. And we have to have a place where we can have resilient hope, where we can rejoice in good days or bad days. And the way we do that is to have the proper kind of hope in the gospel. And the thing is, with most of us, our hope is too short. So we hope for a better day tomorrow than we had today. We hope for a better week next week than we had this week. We hope next week the smoke clears. Maybe, right? We hope next week rain comes. Pray for rain is becoming a real thing, right? Uh, we hope uh, next week uh, our job gets better or that uh, lousy so-and-so at work finally quits. Uh, we, our hope is if, if this gets better, then maybe everything else will get a little bit better and, and we look at our circumstances. But if you've lived longer than 10 minutes, think of that big ugly green monster, which is that problem you've got, right? Whatever it is. When it goes away, what happens? Do you have hope now? Is your hope realized? No, the 10 other green monsters you weren't paying attention to fight to take its place. There's always something, isn't there? As soon as this little problem is handled, this one jumps up and then you get frustrated. The Christian's hope is a longer term hope. It's its hope in the kingdom of God. The Christian's hope is hope in resurrection of the dead. We actually believe Jesus will rule and reign the universe, and Ephesians 1 is true. We are heirs to the kingdom of God. That's where our hope is. To endure patiently through tribulation, we have to have hope that's longer than tribulation ending. We have to have hope that the kingdom will be ushered in one day. As the song sang, we sang, when that trumpet sounds, and depending on the week you had when we sang that chorus, you said, sound trumpet, let's do it. Because that's where our hope is in the kingdom to come. But how are we going to have hope in the eternal kingdom of God? That's difficult. We are constant in prayer. This is something we do together. We pray together in a constancy, a recognition that we need one another's prayer to make it all the way to the end. So let's set a new rule. I'm going to make rules. Do you mind? Okay, it'll be a good rule. Simmer down. Have you ever had somebody share something with you, something really hard, something really difficult? Um, and you're not sure what to say. Oftentimes, it's not sure what to say. Uh, we, of course, learn a, letter, a lesson from the Apostle Peter. Uh, if you're not sure what to say, what's the thing to do? Don't say anything. That's perfectly acceptable to say nothing. So then you utter this phrase, and you feel embarrassed, and you feel lame, and you, it seems trite. What do we say? I'll pray for you. Right? Doesn't it seem lame? The reason it seems lame is because we think prayer is lame. If we actually understood prayer in the Bible, we wouldn't see that as a trite phrase. So here's our rule. Not a rule. It's just let's, let's reassess re, uh, how we view that. When somebody says that they're going to pray for us, we need, to, we need to treasure that, don't we? And, and when we're going to pray for somebody, we need to recognize we are bringing forth as image bearers of God, sons and daughters of the king, the, 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 the intervention of God on behalf of our brother and sister in the Lord. They may not make it through today if we don't pray. So it's not trite. It's not insignificant. Now, it is kind of lame if you don't actually pray. I'll give you that. So if you're that person, anybody ever done that? You ever say, I'm going to pray for you, and then like three days later, you're like, oh, man. Me either. Um, 
So what's the fix to that? Just pray right then. Then you don't have to forget. Then you won't forget. Just say, I'm going to pray for you. Let's pray right now. Now you're covered. Got it? But then keep praying for them. Write it down on a card or something like that so you can be remembered. Be constant prayer. The Bible here says gospel kind of people pray because they know the world isn't right yet and it's hard to make it. And we need to be praying for one another's endurance uh, in the Lord. Verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Genuine love in the church is generous. Hospitality back in the first century was critically important for people who were traveling. There wasn't an Expedia or a Hotels.com. You couldn't just roll up into a city and book a place. You had to rely on the hospitality of others to be able to stay, especially if you're going to come to Jerusalem and maybe hear from James or Peter for an extended period of time because you don't have a Bible at home. So maybe I can get to Jerusalem uh, where Peter is or maybe get up to Antioch where Paul is hanging out and just get taught for a little while so I can go home. That may be the only Bible I hear my whole life. And who am I going to hang out with? Who am I going to stay with? There's no hotel. And the believers in the Lord would open their homes for people to stay for an extended period of time and contributing to the needs of the saints. Genuine love, transformed living in the body of Christ is generous living. Transformed living in the body of Christ is generous living. What does it mean to be generous in the body of Christ? It means we want to make sure everyone has uh, what they need to live. That's one of our jobs is to make sure everybody has what they need to live. This is fantastic. We need to think about generous, generosity just really quickly. Um, if you've got a thousand bucks in your wallet, you know who you are. Um, we're not taking an offering. Simmer down. <clears throat> and then maybe your kid comes up to you and says, hey, can I have 10 bucks? What do you think? It's no big deal, is it? Well, what's 10 bucks? Now, I know some of you dads are like, no, he's going to have to work for it even still. So, I mean, the, the reason you can give the 10 bucks to the kid is because you've got so much in your wallet, 10 bucks doesn't really make a dent. And whatever amount that might be, you say, well, well I have this amount. So generosity in the Bible is defined as having received so much from God, we therefore are able to provide as acts of service to others, generosity. Now, what is interesting about how the Bible expresses this when we go to decide if we have enough to give, where do we check? Where do we go to decide if we have enough to give? Now, most of us, if you're like me, we're going to go to our bank account or the cash in my wallet. And the Bible's a little bit different. It says, no, go to Ephesians 1. And what does Ephesians 1 tell us? Heirs to the kingdom of God. So we're able to be generous, not because we got something. We're able to be generous because God gave us the entire kingdom. And so kindness to others comes from a place of knowing God has given us everything we will ever need. Well, what if I die? Good for you. Now you're in heaven and you're experiencing the inheritance of the kingdom. So this is genuine love in the body of Christ. Genuine love isn't fake. It's righteous. It's diligent in pursuing service for one another. It's prayerful for one another, providing one another tangible expressions of love and affection that we might have our hope fixed in the kingdom of God, and our love is generous. One last observation before we move on to the next section. Church relationships, relationships in the body of Christ ought to be fundamentally different than the way most relationships function in the world around us. And, of course, I'm being a little bit generic here uh, for the sake of time. 
most relationships in the world around this function in a manner we would call transactional relationships. Here's how a transactional relationship goes. I go to the store to buy a dishwasher. And I want this particular dishwasher. And the guy says it's on sale for $199. I look at the features. It's the right kind of features. It's normally $400. And so I'm getting it for a discount. And so this dishwasher is going to cost me $199. $199 my dollars are going to that guy. But I don't care. Why? I'm getting a dishwasher out of the deal. And for me, the benefits of the dishwasher exceed the cost. I don't have to wash the dishes as much, maybe. If it's the right kind, maybe it won't break down as much. I don't know. But what has happened is I don't mind paying you the money. This is even more so when you think of investment. If you go to buy a piece of property or a, a particular investment vehicle, you say, I don't mind spending 100000 bucks on this piece of property. In three years, I anticipate selling it for twice as much. So the benefit of the cost, the benefit far exceeds the cost. Then we approach our relationships that way. Well, yeah, that guy's kind of a jerk. But he's got a nice boat. So I don't want to hunt alone. So I go out with that guy. I, I'll put up with, with these difficulties because I don't want to be alone. And so relationships function this transaction. I'll put up with your shortcomings to the degree there's enough benefit to make up for those shortcomings. Then when the shortcomings exceed the benefit, we say, you know, we kind of grew apart. And then we get divorced. Or we stop being friends. We're friends as long as the relationship provides enough mutual benefit to outweigh the fact that the other person is still a human. Church relationships don't function transactionally. Church rela relationships function, I'm sorry, English isn't my first language, as, as covenantal relationships. Relationships in the body of Christ are designed to recognize that Jesus is both our model and our source. How did Jesus love people? Unconditionally. What did he receive back from them? Not near as much as what he gave. Jesus is also our source. Because Jesus has loved us so much, we have enough love to give to others even if it doesn't pay off. So we, in the body of Christ, we are able to love people even when those relationships don't provide immediate benefit because I don't need it to. I get enough in my relationship with Jesus to provide love to those who don't immediately benefit me. So in the body of Christ, genuine love is fundamentally different than how most relationships function. It's covenantal. We love one another because Christ loved us first, so we don't need the relationships to pay off. All right, look down on verse 17 of Romans chapter 12. Are you still with me? Okay, good. Well, that was kind of pathetic, but that's okay. I don't need this relationship to pay off, apparently. Okay. Transformed love or transformed living is genuine love in the world. So let, we're going to look at verses 17 uh, through 21, but I'm going to start by reading Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So I'll read it, uh, and you can just listen. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture, but it provides us the model for how Jesus relates with the world, and that's going to be our framework as we work through verses 17 uh, to 21. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So the gospel here tells us Jesus' disposition to the world is he takes the initiative to serve others. He takes the initiative to seek peace and righteousness through his own personal sacrifice. Jesus didn't wait for the world to seek him. He took the initiative to seek the world through his own sacrifice to establish peace and righteousness. And so our relationship with the world ought to be defined by how Jesus related to the world. We willingly serve others even when we're wronged. We willingly serve others even when it's costly because Jesus served us. Okay, go back to Romans chapter 9. Are you already there? Man, Romans chapter 12. Sorry about that. Romans chapter 12. We're going to go to the last verse of the chapter, verse 21. Because it is kind of the theme here. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So how do we show genuine love in the world through transformed living? We don't, uh, we aren't overcome with evil, but we overcome evil with good. So let me, let me put it in another way. Christians living in the world today are to live a life where the rhythm is not a daily reaction to what's going on in the world, but a daily response to the mercy of God. So the the Christian approaches the world, we are not approaching the world as a daily reaction to whatever is going on today, or this week, or this year. Our response in the world is a daily reflection on the mercy of God, and engaging with the world, having reflected and responded to the mercy of God. When I get up in the morning, am I deciding my disposition to the world based on the morning news, or what I read on social media, or what somebody texted me? Genuine love to the world doesn't respond to the world reacting to it. Genuine love to the world responds to a merciful God and approaches the world saying, I have received God's mercy. I want you to experience God's mercy. Jesus related to the world through serving others, so we do. So we're, we're not reacting to the world, we're responding to God. We want God's loving mercy to inform the relationships we have with the people we know at work, in our neighborhoods, and in our families. Do not be overcome by evil, be over, but overcome evil with good. I just see it more and more nowadays. We just respond to what's going on around us. We decide, our mood is determined by what the world's doing today. Are you serious? We're not from here. This, this isn't where we, this isn't our neighborhood. How we are today, at my, at my MIOKness uh, ratio for today is defined by the mercy of God. How are we doing on the mercy of God situation? We doing okay there? More than we need, according to the scripture. If I remember my Psalms correctly, I think it's new every morning. Some of you also get a boost in the afternoons. And so we're going to let what's going on in the world around us, the kookiness of what's going on in the world around us, and, and this is what's even funnier. We like to pretend we're the only generation that's ever faced kooky. We just have a particular flavor of kooky. But kooky has been happening for 2,000 years and longer. So are we going to base our okayness as believers today about what's going on in the world around us? I pray not. The Bible says our okayness is defined by the mercy of God, and the Bible tells me it is new every morning. The way we overcome evil 
is to, the way we uh, fail to we refrain from being overcome by evil is recognizing we're not reacting to the world, we're responding to God's mercy. Okay, let's go back to verse 17. I'm doing it in this order on purpose. I just don't have time to explain why. You have to trust me. Some more commands. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. So here's a contrast that he's giving us. We have two options. Number one, repaying evil for evil. The other option is thinking about what might be honorable. The normal thing to do when you're wronged is to go home and contemplate how you can get back at him. All right, he did this. I don't have the ability to get my money back, or I don't have the ability to sue him, or I don't have the ability. So what can I do? Well, I could post a bunch of negative comments about his business online. I could gossip about him to all his friends. I could tell all of my friends, other friends uh, uh, all kinds of stuff about him, so I can get my revenge. And the Bible says, well, that's one way to do it. That would be uh, a non-gospel-y, Jesus-y way to do it. The other one is you get wronged and you go home and you go, boy, I got to really put some thought into this. What can I do that would, would be really honorable? You ever done that? Yeah, me either. But we're reading the Bible, so we may as well give it a shot. You can say, okay, this, this, I was wronged here. What does it look like for me to consider what is honorable in particular for that person? What, what is it that I ought to do uh, that says, um, this person, yeah, it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to extend honor to them. Now, why would I do that? Is it because I'm that good? No, I'm doing that because Jesus already did that for me. He honored me. How did he do that? He died on the cross for me. He rose from the dead. He, dead. he didn't have to do that. So in contrast to what's normal, which is thinking about how we get our revenge, how we get things even, the gospel says we ought to think about, even ruminate, stew on, how can I be like Christ to that person who in particular uh, wronged me? Look at verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So when we're thinking about our relationships, this would apply in the church and out of the church, the Bible is telling us, as far as it goes, if we're going to, let's make sure we've done everything we can that this relationship functions from our end. I know how you're thinking. Well, I have. It's just they're that wrong. But we have to think in the context of the passage. The passage isn't, no, when they figure out how wrong they are, this will work. I'll give them their space. That's not what this is saying. This is saying, in the context of this passage, what must I do to humbly serve others? How do I extend myself beyond what it would normally be done? You say, well, that's not right. Man, I'm glad Jesus didn't do it right. Because if Jesus was only going to do it for people who deserved it, he wouldn't have died. And that gospel kind of mindset comes into play. It's not merely, I want to make sure that if we're not getting along, it's all the other person's fault. It's even if it is the other person's fault, what is there that I can do? How can I be humble? How can I serve? How can I sacrifice? How can I engage? Let's be clear. I need to qualify this. We, we, we ought to have clear and healthy boundaries, and we're not opening ourselves up to abuse, right? That's not what the Bible is talking about here. We can have healthy, clear boundaries. We're not to be walked all over and, and allow ourselves to be abused. But what we want to do is say, are there things I could do to even serve this one, even though they're wrong? As long as it, if, it's, if there's any way, the other person's not going to think of that creative way we can get along. Maybe God will give me the wisdom and say, 
wait, maybe this will work. And, and, and we, can, we can bury the hatchet and have kindness and forgiveness uh, between us. Keep going. Verse 19 and 20. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Just letting that sink a little. When do we get to avenge ourselves? Yeah, I see what you're doing. You, go, you guys are a bunch of Bible people. You are racking your brain for the times the never apply, doesn't apply, aren't you? You're like, but not... The never means never. I don't, I mean, it's the plain thing. It just, the never means never. When do we get revenge? That would be the never. But leave it to God, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will, I will uh, repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. By doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. So let's first deal with that metaphor at the end, the burning coals on his head. That's weird. I've never done that to anybody. That seems rude. So what does that mean? I have no idea, but I'll give you the three options. Number one, it means heat burning coals on his head, which would be really painful. Yay. It could mean a blessing. Sometimes apparently people carried buckets around on their head, and that's where you'd put the coals so they could heat their fire. Hey, bless you. Here's your coals. That's what it could mean. It could also be an illustration. We might say that the person might be red-faced with shame and embarrassment. We, they do something mean, we do something good, they realize how dumb they were being, and they're red-faced with shame. I have no idea what it means, but guess what? It doesn't matter, because the verse already has told us what we're supposed to do. Right? What did it say we're supposed to do? Don't have revenge, leave it up to God. If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Some of you are creative. I see what you're doing. Give him something to eat. Dry ramen. Little packet, it's 10 cents. No hot water for you, bro. You got to eat it dry and then sprinkle the seasoning packet on your tongue. Have it, have it, enjoy your meal. I see what you're doing. That's rude. Some of you are going, these are some good ideas. <laughs> no, knowing the context of the passage, what do you do if you're going to feed your enemy here? I know you like Buffalo Wild Wings. I know you like whatever they're... I, so I was thinking of you, and the Bible told me to give stuff to people I don't like. I mean, the, and you bless them. And if somebody is thirsty, give them something to drink, meaning scoop a glass of water out of the mud puddle out back. No. Give them your coldest, clearest water, or I don't know if I can say it here, your, your finest bottle of wine, your, your coldest microbrew. A blessing to him. Saying, I'm, I'm not going to take revenge. Let's be clear. I'm leaving that in God's hands so you and him can handle that business. But I'm going to do what God has, has called me to do. If your enemy is hungry, this is completely upside down of what the world does. This is trusting God for justice, trusting God to make things right, trusting God that his kingdom is good enough that when we get there, it will be worth the humble sacrifice so we can have acts of generosity not merely to people we like and love and care about but we have acts of generosity even to people that we would normally not spend time with or even people who we might consider enemies why do we do that because jesus died for enemies why did jesus die for enemies it wasn't anybody else it's all there was was enemies so we're just merely doing jesus kind of stuff 
in this way? What does the gospel look like? Transformed living. This is weird. If you did this, people in your family would tell you you're weird. That's how you know you're getting close. When people you care about tell you you're kooky, you might be getting kind of gospely. Let's apply this really quick, and then we'll take communion together. Look at verse 14. Three verses, three application questions and a, uh, that you can uh, do with as you wish. Here we go, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Just, I just want you to answer this question. Please don't say it out loud. They might be in the room. Who is it? Think, the name. Who is the person that when we say, bless those who are, mm, man, that guy. You know who I'm talking about? It's all the same guy for all of us, right? No. Who is it for you? That person. How would you bless them? What does blessing look like? He said, forget about it. Now it's gotten too hard. That's what Jesus did. He blessed those who persecuted him. Think about why you would bless this person. Number one, it's not to fix things. It's not to help them finally figure out how wrong they were and how right you are. It's not to rub it in their face. Why do we bless those who persecute you? Because Jesus blessed those who persecuted him. That's it. That's the end of the story. We do it as an act of worship to God. What do we need it to generate for us? Nothing. The worship to God is enough as we bless those who have persecuted with us. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Next question. Are we happy when something really good happens to others or are we envious? You ever had that? Your buddy gets a promotion. His business dealings are fruitful. He experiences a profitable year or two years or 10 years. And we go, you know what? When's my piece of the action coming? And we're, we, aren't, we aren't happy for their success and their bounty and their blessing. Instead, inside, we're filled with a sense of envy. God, why not me-ish? Uh, why not me sense? And the Bible here calls us to rejoice, to experience their happiness with them, even if we don't experience the blessings they're having. Second part of that, weep with those who weep. Are we willing to be unhappy with others, even though it interrupts our pursuit of happiness? Are we willing? We've got a great weekend planned. I've got great stuff going on. We're going to do this. I can't wait. I don't have time to cry with you. I don't need you getting, getting my vibe down. This weekend, I need to refresh from how hard my work was, and I don't need you dragging me down in your sorrow. And Jesus says, that's what I do. I leave my great weekend I had planned in glory for all of eternity and come and experience your sorrow. Allow people's unhappiness and weepiness and sorrow to ruin our good day. That's what we do. Are we willing to be unhappy with others even though we don't want our constant happiness interrupted? Last one, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So the command here is in Christ, since he wasn't uh, haughty, since he wasn't uh, willing to stay uh, uh, excluded from us in glory, but humbled himself, we're being called to do the same thing and be uh, willing to associate with, and that's a, a brotherly bond with the lowly. How do I know if I am haughty or not? 
How do I know if I have a sense of superiority or not? I might suggest merely this. The haughty don't want to associate with the lowly. Those who aren't haughty don't see lowly. So one of the ways I can diagnose my own heart and its arrogance, if I see someone as lowly, what, by definition, I got some haughtiness to deal with in my own heart. What we're seeing here is a, I'm, uh, the person who has had Christ work in this area of their life, they don't see someone as lowly, they just see their buddy. They just see their friend, that, that their, their employment status or their health status or their relationship status or how good they're doing at beating their addiction status is not the issue. They're seen merely as their brother or their sister. Do we see people as lowly? The problem is not the lowly. Like when they would finally get their act together, they can be fully in. The problem is we see them as lowly. Transformed living in the church and the world, expressions of genuine love. How do we do this? How in the world are we supposed to do this? Because if you're like me and you read through this passage, you kind of go, man, I hope we don't have to do this very well because I'm not good at most of these things. How in the world are we to do this? And one of the ways we do this is by remembering Jesus is our source of genuine love. Remembering where our love comes from, it comes from Jesus. We go back in our minds to that day, maybe even that you got saved. Do you remember the day you got saved? Some of you were maybe children, others of you were maybe adults. If you had lived for a little while and you got saved, you maybe remember that day as the day where you looked back on your history of sin and rebellion and you say, I, I can't believe God is forgiving me for all of that. And if you're like uh, many of us and you got saved as a very young person, maybe you look back over your life as a Christian and you say, I can't believe Jesus forgave me for all of that that I did, even as a believer. So we we go back into our, in our minds on the day of our faith that we say, Jesus died for me and Jesus forgives me. All that stuff is forgiven. When I experience that profoundly by the power of the Spirit, that's when we can give genuine love to the world around us and to our brothers and sisters in the Lord, is we remember that we had Christ's genuine love first. So that's how we're going to do communion today, is we're going to remember.